Turn with me, please, for our reading to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Matthew's Gospel <coughs> and chapter 26. We have been looking at the last week in the life of the Lord Jesus, and in particular we've spent some time looking at the last night in the life of the Lord Jesus, and we spent quite a number of weeks looking at the lessons in the upper room, and it's with some degree of hesitation and I'd like to tarry there a lot longer, but we'd be here for the rest of the year. So we're going to move this morning following the journey of the Lord Jesus <coughs> as, they, as he is to leave the upper room and commence that journey to Gethsemane's garden. And then from Gethsemane's garden, right there to Calvary and the sufferings of the cross. It is late at night. Chapter 26 and verse 30. <coughs> When they had sung a hymn or a psalm, they went out into the Mount of Olives. <clears throat> I want you to listen to what he says to them. Or Jesus said unto them, All you, all of ye, shall be offended or stumbled because of me this night. And here's the reason, the thing that would stumble them. For it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. But look what comes next. After I am risen again, remember what Brother Nick brought to us? He had authority, he had power to lay down his life, he had power to take it again. After I'm risen again, he's looking through the sufferings of the cross to the wonder of the resurrection, to the grand climax of the program of God. He said, I will go before you into Galilee. I'll stop the reading there at the moment. There's many other things he discussed on the way as they leave the upper room, journeying to Gethsemane. It's getting very late at night, and the scripture records they sang a psalm, it would be. They sang a hymn. And as they left the upper room and made their way to Gethsemane's garden, they talked along the way over many things, and the Lord brought to them such topics, beautiful, beautiful teaching, as he made his way to that place of suffering. He told them that the shepherd would be smitten. That's the thing we read about. The next thing he talks about is that to Peter and his faith is going to be severely tested. And then Luke records that record, the, I was going to say that strange record of a sword and how they need to go and buy one. And you know, things were different, things were changing. And then he ends it by saying the things concerning me have an end. For it says here, I will be numbered with the transgressors. Now, each of these three points of conversation and teaching are full of instruction for us. We're going to start here at verse 30, though, where be just as they're leaving and before they left, they sing a hymn, sing a psalm as they go to the Mount of Olives. Now, just picture the scene, because you've got to live in this section of Scripture to get the sheer beauty and drama and poignancy and meaning of it, to capture that real atmosphere. Throughout the Passover feast, they've been singing the Psalms. Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 were sung together. And at the end of the feast, they would sing this last one, and it was Psalm 118. So probably that's what's being referred to in verse 30. Think of it, just 11 men and the Lord Jesus himself. Now, Eleven men, they're, they're still fearful, they're still apprehensive, they're even confused. 
He has spent so much in that upper room uh, comforting them, you know, encouraging them, pointing them to the future, to the glorious hope. I will come again and receive you to myself. Letting them understand that the great work of the kingdom of God would not falter by his death and through his death, rather it would triumph. The work which they would do, that it would, now he was gone from them to take his place on high, the work that they would do would be even greater than the work that he was doing. They would have that access in prayer, that they would have access to the throne. The Holy Spirit would come down and he would superintend the work of God on earth during the absence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would be the one who would convict the world of sin and righteousness and of judgment to come. They as instruments, as filled with, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, directed and empowered by him, would go into all the world and they would preach the gospel and be part of that great work. Things were not failing. The program of God was moving forward as he said to them, Arise, gird up the loins of your mind. Let us go hence into a glorious future of triumph in the work and purposes of God. And then he closes and he says, But don't ever think you're going to be left on your own because you never, never will. I'm going to come by the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. God the Father himself will make his abode in you. God, the Holy Spirit will be with you and the triune God will be your strength for the journey along the way until the final climax of the coming again of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's very, very beautiful, very beautiful. And then it says they sang a psalm or sang a hymn. Now just sit in that upper room a minute and listen. I wonder who started that psalm and I wonder who led the singing. It must have been. It must have been the master. And if it was, it gives such a, a meaning to that verse in Psalm 22, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 2. In the midst of the congregation will I sing thy praises. And it, imagine yourself there listening, and you know what lies ahead, and suddenly each word that's sung is charged with a sense of a immediacy, immediate reality. You see, the psalm had been sung for centuries at the Passover feasts, but it had never been sung like this before. Never. Never. Every word has fresh strength and, as I said, potency and immediacy and meaning. You think of the words that are in that psalm. I called upon the Lord in my distress and he answered me. The Saviour himself is singing this in anticipation of the cross. And we are listening, understanding what lies ahead. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what man can do unto me. Open unto me the gates of righteousness and I will go in unto them. He has not given me over unto death. The stone which the builders have rejected have become the headstone of the corner. This is the day that the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. What words were sung in that upper room that night and the Saviour himself in the fullness of understanding of the victory that he would gain that though he would lay down his life he had authority and power to take it again. And the final verse is O oh, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good and his mercy endureth forever. And they then rise and leave as it were as the last note dies down, and they're declaring the mercies of God. Their pathway takes them from Jerusalem and down into the valley over the brook Kidron and up the hill the other side as they make their way to the garden of the olive trees, 
Gethsemane's garden. And there they will pause, and he will pause, to pray before Calvary. I mean, we'll come to that another session, but what a prayer that was. What a prayer. I mean, it was prayer that brought agony, Luke says, sweat like drops of blood, prayer that required angels to help the one who was praying. We will go there another time. Sacred ground, we need to go with holy hands and careful lips. But just just picture that little band again. It's very late in the evening. It's been a tremendous day of stress and strain and burden. They are very weary. It, it is late. And indeed it's true, and I, I picture it as the they're making their way across the desert sands. And the paschal moon is already riding high in the heavens, casting its light, causing their shadows, as it were, to spread across as a silhouette on the sand. This is their final hours with the Lord. They're making a journey. In the morning light, he, as the true Passover lamb, will become the bearer away of the sin of the world. The lamb prophesied by Abraham long ago, when on Mount Moriah he said to Isaac, my son, God will himself provide a lamb. The Passover lamb pointed out by John the Baptist some three and a half years just before this, as he looked on Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the lamb of God, the bearer away of the sin of the world. I want you to look at that, that little group again as they're making their way, led by the master. I don't know quite how they walked, but I, I would imagine that he, he stood, as it were, and walked ahead, as it, leading them on. There was no hesitation in his footsteps. There was purpose in his face. And the others would follow with a certain fear and trepidation and maybe not quite the same confidence. But there he is. Eleven men and one man destined to be the Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb, the better away of the sin of the world. Just behind them as they're making their journey is the city of Jerusalem. That very same day, the very same afternoon, the Passover meal has already been celebrated. Back there in the temple it all occurred. It was a massive complex. Massive. They tell me that the whole thing covered 35 acres, a building of glistening and glittering opulence and marble. The crowd, not 11 men and one man, the crowds had come surging through the streets of Jerusalem. Literally hundreds of thousands of them leading a lamb as a sacrifice for the Passover at the temple. In the days of Nero, there's a record there, a historical record, a man called Cestius Gaulus. He was a governor of Syria, and he completed an official record of the events that happened on one Passover night. He did it because he wanted to convince the governor, Nero, of the importance of the ceremonies of the Jewish people. And in the record it says on that one Passover, 256,500 lambs were offered in sacrifice. I mean, that just almost blows your mind away. And they allowed one lamb for a minimum of 10 people and a maximum of 20. That means if there was 256,500 lambs sacrificed at that massive, glistening marble edifice, right, 
There was at least that number in the million, 2,565,000 people in the city at the time. That's allowing one for ten. Probably it was nearer to three and a half million surging through the streets of Jerusalem for this grand sacrifice, for this grand feast of the Passover. You can imagine it, massive crowds, thousands of bleating lambs. And they were all making their way to the temple and they were admitted in, in groups into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles. That was huge. There were thousands of people in there by the, as the day went on. Then they would make their journey to the court of the priests. And when you got, they got to the entrance of the court of the priests, there were two rows of priests standing, facing each other in a row going right up to the great altar of sacrifice, to the altar of sacrifice. They were clothed in white, they said, They had no shoes on their feet, but in their hands they held bowls. On the one side they held the golden bowls, and on the other side the silver bowls. And the the man with the lamb would come to the foot of that row, and the lamb would die. It would be cut, and the blood would be shed. And the priest with the golden bowl would capture that blood in that bowl, and he would pass it up the line, receiving back an empty bowl, for the next lamb and the next sacrifice. On the other side, the carcass of the animal would be taken and it would be prepared for sacrifice. The skin would be taken, it was for the priest, various portions were for the priest, special portions were for the offering, and the fat on the altar for God. And then the carcass given back to the offerer to be used in the Passover meal that night. Now, can you get the picture? Up one side there's going bowl after bowl of blood. Up the other side, there's portion after portion for sacrifice. There were millions in the city, hundreds of thousands of sheep. Blood poured out at the base of the uh, altar, going down through the drains, out into the river, the brook Kidron. And it said at the time that the, the river, the stream, ran like a river of blood. And all the while, the... The temple was filled with the smell of smoke and the burning of the sacrifice, the sizzling of the fat, the singing of the priests as they they led the people on in the psalms and singing of them as the whole massive ritual went on. Millions of people, hundreds of thousands of sheep, rivers of blood, the smell of burning flesh, the smoke, the sizzle of the fat, the chanting of the priests. Yet at the end of that, ceremony, not one single sin had been put away. Not one. Meanwhile, one man, who is both sacrifice and priest, one man, is making his way to that place of sacrifice. It's not a massive marble edifice. That place of sacrifice would ultimately be the old rugged cross where the dearest and best for the world of lost sinners was sane. And it would be there that that one, one lamb would shed precious blood. It will make propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the the whole world. And because he as the lamb was without spot and without blemish, he would then rise from the dead. He would ascend up on high He would sit down on the very throne of God amidst the multitudes on high who would sing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. Now, can you get the contrast that I'm trying to build up for you? 
On the one hand, massive temple, rivers of blood, multiple sacrifices. On the other, one man, one sacrifice, four sins, forever. Hallelujah, what a saviour. No wonder Isaac Watts wrote those words. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or wash away one stain. But Christ, the heavenly lamb, takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. Thank God. Let us look again at the journey he is taking. One man, as it were, the lamb of God, the bearer away of the sin of the world. Along the journey, he does have some serious topics of conversation. We've read the one here, and it's all about the smiting of the shepherd <coughs> and the flock being scattered. In the next one, he talks, about, talks to Peter about his faith is going to get tested. And then he also says to them that, you know, things are changing and it's time to buy a sword. It's a strange conversation We'll dwell on later on as to what it really means. And then at that time he says he's going to be numbered with the transgressors. Right. It's very helpful to go through those conversations, right, <clears throat> and see how he describes his own death at that time using the word of God. The one we read, out, read here, he's telling us he's dying as a shepherd, number one. Number two, he's telling us that he will die as one who is smitten, in the last uh, conversation, he tells them he's going to die as one who is a transgressor. And finally, he's also telling them here, he's dying as one who is going to rise again. Now, you can look those things up. We'll deal with them in later sessions. Right. Let's just go and look at the first one. He is going to die as a shepherd. That's John 10. I was glad that Nick got to John 10 this morning in his readings. They're very beautiful, beautiful readings because it's in John 10. He says, I am the good shepherd. Beautiful words. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. And in those words, you see, dying as a shepherd, you've got the glorious truth that we call the truth of substitution. What do I mean by that? Well, you see, normally a sheep or a lamb would die for the shepherd. If the, only, if the shepherd just needed food, the lamb died, the shepherd lived. But if it came to sacrifice, then the lamb was offered, the sheep was offered on behalf of the shepherd. So normally the sheep would die, not the shepherd. But now there's such a difference because the shepherd has died for the sheep. That's why each one of us here this morning who are truly saved can say, he died for me. I should have. But he took my place and he died for me. Oh, blessed Lamb of Calvary. He took my place and he died for me. And that should lift your spirits up in gratitude this morning to the Lord who took your place and bore what you justly deserved and died in our room and in our stead. There's an old hymn we used to sing. We'll sing of the shepherd that died that died for the sake of the flock. His love to the utmost was tried, but firmly endured as a rock. When blood from a victim must flow, then this shepherd, this smitten shepherd, this shepherd by pity was led to stand between us and the foe 
and to willingly die in our stead. Fellow Christian, we just need to pause a minute this morning and give thanks in appreciation and say, he died for me and give him thanks for it. Because, you know, your salvation rests on that. That that Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, was actually your substitute. And indeed, when you enter the gates of heaven, you'll be singing it still. No other hope, no other plea. He took my place, he died for me, O precious Lamb of Calvary. He took my place and he died for me. Right, so he died as the shepherd. There's more in that in the words. This is the beauty of scripture, but it's also the beauty of when the Lord Jesus speaks. Every word is packed full of meaning. What's, what startles you when you study the teachings of the Lord Jesus is the economy of words, yet the clarity, the simplicity, and the absolute authority and the fullness of what he says. He says, I will smite the shepherd. So we're now thinking of him just not only as the shepherd that died, but as the smitten shepherd. What does that mean? Well, we do know Acts 2 tells us, and Peter was right when he preached on Pentecost, that he was taken by wicked hands, he was crucified and slain, yes. It is true that they smote him on the head, it says in Matthew, and they smote him on the cheek, it says in Luke. And the prophet says, they ploughed deep the furrows upon my back, scourged with him with the smiting of the lash. Yes, he was smitten when he died, yes, that's true. But there's more in this verse than that, and that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is, I will smite the shepherd. God himself would come with a stroke of justice and judgment and the death of that lamb, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ would be a death which he died under the smiting of God in the judgment of sin according to his wrath. Isaiah said he was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. The scripture here is from Zechariah, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, even against the man that is my fellow. Smite the shepherd. The sheep shall be scattered abroad. Isaiah in chapter 53 captivates it all together as he blends it together. And he says he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. They would see him, the Lamb of God, the bearer away of the sin of the world. They would see him dying on the one hand in the hand of man. They would see him as a shepherd dying in their place. And that was one thing. And such a sight would be in itself absolutely terrible. But there's something more here that would cause them to stumble or to be offended or to be scattered. Because what they would see was even more terrible than what man might do to him and putting him to grief and to shame. They would see him stricken, smitten of God. Meaning he would die under the stroke of justice. He would actually die under the judgment of God. He would actually die under the wrath of God. That would be the actual thing that would cause them to be, there's a the word, uh, set back, stumbled in a way, scattered. And it would be the thing that would actually offend them, cause them to stumble. I mean, why? What, what's going on? You see, 
we must understand that in that death on the cross, the Lord Jesus became as if he were a sinner. He took our sin on himself as if it were his own. The scripture says with words of almost of mystery, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And he became answerable to God for that sin. Now God's response to sin is really anger. Angry with the wicked every day. His response to sin in the Bible is described as his wrath. There's anger and wrath and judgment in God's response to sin. He doesn't change. The penalty for sin must be paid. I mean, sin has been committed. Guilt has been established. God's law has been broken. His glory has been infringed. Yea, his authority has been outraged by the introduction of sin. And justice must be done. Otherwise, what's left? If justice isn't done, there's anger, wrath and judgment that remain. Now, when it says of the Lord Jesus, in Isaiah 53... He made his soul an offering for sin. That's a powerful expression. The word soul there really embraces all that that inner person is. He made his soul an offering for sin. That means he bore anger, wrath and judgment. What he bore was the full penalty for sin. See, we're dealing now with a great doctrine of what's called in the Bible propitiation. What we're dealing with was substitution. My lamb, my sacrifice, my substitute. He took my place and he died for me, right? But now we're dealing with what he bore and in propitiating God. What he did for God to enable God, instead of moving to every sinner with anger, wrath and justice, but to move to every sinner so that he can justify that sinner and declare him free of all guilt and no judgment is left to be borne. To propitiate means to turn away wrath. And it has the idea of by means of a sacrifice. And this is what the Lord Jesus did. For God to turn away his wrath and his judgment with sin and the sinner, remember Justice must be done or else God is not just. He's not righteous. The penalty must be paid because once that's happened, there is no further reason for anger, wrath or judgment. Now, in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the smiting of the Lord Jesus Christ, when the stroke of justice fell on him, when the wrath of God was poured out upon him, in the mystery of Calvary, in the darkness of the hours of the cross, when he was stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. When the scripture was actually fulfilled, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. It was there that the wrath of God, God himself was propitiated and God's wrath was born and the scripture was fulfilled. It's why he died on that cross, forsaken by God. The mystery of the darkness, the mystery of the three hours and The end of the three hours is that anguished cry, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The darkness is there and it signifies something of the fact that light's not there. Why is not light there? Because God was not there. As the Lord Jesus Christ bearing sin and scoffing rude, yes, 
bearing the entire judgment of God against sin, takes the full wrath upon himself in the darkness, in the anguish, which ends with that cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is a tremendous truth. Yet once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, the universe hath shaken It went up single, echoless. There was no answer back. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from his holy lips amidst a lost creation that none, no none need ever know that awful desolation. Because, you know, the ultimate judgment that the sinner faces is depart from me, ye cursed. And they're sent into a place which is called uh, outer darkness. They are totally forsaken of God. God is a God of wrath, let us understand it. In that final day, if you have no saviour, life is lived in the absence of God under the continual wrath of God. He is a God of wrath, he is a God of judgment, he will by no means clear the guilty under no circumstances whatsoever. And the Lord Jesus faced all that. Stricken, smitten of God, a shepherd that was smitten, Why? So that justice could be satisfied. God could be propitiated and turn his anger away. And the sinner that trusts Christ as saviour and has him as their substitute need never fear the judgment of God forever. Romans 3 says it, so that God might might be just and the justifier of him that believes in Jesus whom he has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. He's put him on display for every sinner to see that there's a sacrifice that has satisfied the wrath and anger and judgment of God and the stroke of justice has fallen on the lamb that God provided so that the sinner can come and be declared totally free of guilt, totally free. The past erased, sin actually removed, not by 2,500... 256,500 lambs, but by precious blood that flowed on Calvary Street from the lamb, the one man, the one sacrifice for sin forever. This is the answer to Romans 1, which starts off, the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men. That's where it starts. And it sums it up in chapter 3 by saying, all of sin has come short of the glory of God. And then it goes on and tells you about the Saviour. Yes that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus, who be set forward to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. And a sinner who believes is free, can say the Saviour died for me, can point to the atoning blood and say, that made my peace with God. You can go on free of guilt and free of sin and the assurance of a place in heaven in the glorious presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember it again, as long as the penalty's not paid, law and justice is ever after you. You know that. You know, you break the law, what happens? You get fined. You don't pay your fine, and they never let you alone till you do. <laughs> right? Now, that's exactly the point. And understand, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's a terrible thing for a sinner. And understand, it says in the Bible and the New Testament as well, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, the Lord Jesus bearing the sinner's sin, fell into the hands of the living God and he faced the consuming fire. 
the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the smiting of God in judgment. And please, if God did this to Christ, if this is what God, it cost God in his son, if this is what it cost Christ in his death, not just to be, as it were, taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain, but rather to actually suffer forsaking and suffering of wrath, if that's what it took to put away sin, then could we please just stop in our lives right now and realise the exceeding seriousness of sin? And fellow Christian, would you stop playing with it? Could we all just stop playing with it? That sin put Christ on the cross under the smiting of the wrath of God. And in order to offer you the pardon so full and free and be your substitute, he must suffer that first. God is a God of wrath. He is a God of judgment. All right, Genesis 1 to 11, we'll do it again, hey? That's the whole point of the Garden of Eden, you know. Do you know what happened that man? What a beautiful place. And yet there was judgment. What for? For many sin, for one sin. And what did the Lord God say to Adam? Well, Adam, I'm awfully sorry you've made a mistake. You have. It's an awful pity. I understand your weakness, but I, I'll send you to counselling. <laughs> Don't start that. Um, did he say, well, look, I think you better pack up and go? It doesn't say that. It says he drove man out. He drove him out. You see, there's urgency, there's anger, there's, this has got to stop. One sin, Adam driven out, and the fiery sword is put guarding the way to the tree of life. It's a sword of judgment and justice. That's the symbol you've got there. If you want to go to the flood, go to the flood. An entire world engulfed in the wrath of God. I mean, God is a fearsome God. It's true he's a God of love, yes, but there is a God of judgment. We go and look for Solomon and Gomorrah and there's nothing left. Nothing left. So I just want you to understand his death is a glorious display and a proof of the love of God but his death is also a fearful display of the wrath of God. And each one of us needs a smitten shepherd to be our saviour or else we ourselves will be smitten sinners under everlasting wrath. What was that sermon, that famous sermon? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Don't forget it. We've lost this in the church. We've lost the truth of sinfulness of sin. We've lost the understanding of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. We missed because we don't like the offense of the cross. The word for offense there in Galatians 5 is the scandal of the cross. The scandal of it, actually. And now says the Lord Jesus, this is what you'll see and this will offend you. Get it? This will scatter you. This will stumble you. Now look, nothing's changed today. This is a real lesson as we move towards the Garden of Gethsemane and the darkness of Calvary. This is a problem. The notion of God as a God of wrath is not acceptable in our thinking today. Tragically, we have let it come into the church. No, I'm not going to stand here and say, they brought it into the church. No, I'm going to say, we, we succumbed aloud 
You say, but you didn't do that. I'll beg you, wait a minute, wait a minute. You remember Daniel? Do you remember Daniel when he was confessing his sins? Do you know what he did? He says, I was confessing my sins and the sin of my people. I tell you what, I'd almost defy you to find Daniel's sin. But he identified himself with the state of the people. And look, none of us lift our heads up in pride. And I just want to say that very cautiously and I want to say it very carefully. We live in a country, we live in a society and it's crept into the church and it's more in our thinking than we think, than we realise that the notion of a God of wrath is not really acceptable. The notion of a saviour dying on a cross for sin in my place is actually quite offensive. The notion that I should ever be judged is something that's not even wanting to be tolerated. So that as the scripture says, this truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has become a stone of stumbling. You get it? And a rock of offence. They stumble at the word. As we said in Galatians, where people were coming in telling them to earn their salvation, to do some works of law and righteousness, so they'll have something, as it were, to add to the uh, equation as to how they get right with God. Something of themselves, like we all like. The apostles saying what's happening is the offence of the cross. All right, the scandal of the cross is being done away with. That's what he says there. And he says there is a stone of stumbling, says the apostle in the epistle of Romans, and a rock of offence, right? And he says what's happened is this. They're stumbling at the word because, listen, the Jews seek a sign. Got that? Come back to it. The Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Why? Because it's the only message that saves. You can't preach a message that soothes. You must preach a message that saves. Right? The Jews seek a sign. What's that? Wonders. Miracles. The supernatural. The spectacular. That was what appealed to them in their thinking of the age. Is anything changed? How how this has crept in amongst us all in the last few decades where the spectacular, the wonderful, the supernatural, the Jesus who's going to reign and put the world right and sort out the society and let everybody know that us Christians were right in the first place and is going to give us prime ministers and governors and kings over lands that are going to do exactly what the kingdom of God's all about. And oh, it's all a lot of rubbish. We're following a man who went to die on a cross. It's not the glittering temple. It's not the magnificent marble. It's not the blood of the millions of sacrifices or even the chanting of all the psalms. It is one when beneath that fair sky went a man forced to die for the world and for you and for me. We follow him this morning. In the wake of those 11 men, we're following him because what they didn't realise is they wanted the supernatural and they wanted the spectacular. They needed to go at the cross and then they need to wait and stand at the tomb and see the stone rolled away. And he is risen indeed. And listen to the words of the women as they came to the gathering and said, we have seen the Lord. And the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. <clears throat> you know, if you actually get a bit involved in trying to read Greek philosophy, I'm not advising it. <laughs> These days they think you've got to know all this stuff in order to be a minister of the word. Um, it's a bit muddled. That's not touched. It might confuse your mind because what you're dealing with, you see, actually Greek philosophy is summed up in sheer brilliance by a few words that I read only recently where really it was a whole idea of asking questions. All right, Questioning everything. Questioning everything. But they never had any answers. Right? 
I know. All the source of wisdom and knowledge is hidden in Jesus Christ. And they never had him, you see. They said some good things. But it was all about asking questions and not having any answers. Now, careful in the church that we don't find ourselves questioning everything. You understand what I mean? Look, you've got the tangle of intellect in the Greek philosophy. You'll get the tangle of intellect, if you're not careful, in theological philosophy. Theological intellect, which loves to sort of question everything and look at this truth or this verse or this unpalatable statement and think about it in terms of culture and different interpretations in different cultures or gnaw away at the original word and find where it was used somewhere else where it was in a different context with a different meaning. But if you took it and you put it in this meaning, in in this uh, setting, uh, you could even write a PhD uh, on this, actually, just on this, you get your PhD. For it, a different viewpoint on a different verse and a different point. All the while, questions, 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 no absolute answers. In the Word of God, we have the absolute, straight, clear truth of God, and we preach it. And the gospel we preach is Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. It is plain, it is true, it is absolute. We do not blur the edges with constant questioning so that nothing is clear and sharp. Indeed, there's no black and white. We end up just with grey. And so it sort of accommodates us all. No, it's not like that. It's not like that at all. It's plain and clear. There's a verse that speaks, and I'm using a different translation, actually a more original one, where it says, when it's speaking of the way of righteousness... The wayfaring man, though he be a fool, he does not need to err therein. The wayfaring man, the swaggy, if you like, though he be a fool, he's got no great education or understanding. But the wayfaring man, though he have not that great understanding, he doesn't need to make a a mistake when it comes to following in the pathway and the road of righteousness. The narrow way that leads to life. And so the Lord Jesus... And I, I emphasize that again, that we do not get caught up in it. Because as Paul said to the Corinthian believers, I fear lest if by any means your heart should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Now that's a very wide verse there. It, it, it happens in so many areas. The simplicity that's in Christ is corrupted in our thinking and in our minds. Let's not do this. Let's understand that the Lord Jesus died a shepherd as a substitute. It's all right, you take him out. No, no, don't you be sorry. (laughs) Let the little ones come, never. (laughs) Okay. When the Lord Jesus died, he died as a substitute for sinners. He died under the wrath of God as a propitiation for our sins. And the way of salvation is clear and wide and open. And as he says in the last part that we read, and behold, I go before you into Galilee, and you can see him there. He's in complete control. Satan was never in control of the death of Christ. As a matter of fact, he overstepped his mark because he invited Christ in to his own stronghold death. And you know what happened? He burst. He tore the bars away and he went right through and he destroyed him who had the power of death. That is the devil. That's what he did, you see. No, he was ever, the Lord Jesus was ever in control. Satan may bruise the heel, but he would crush the head. 
He could not keep Christ in the stronghold. I lay down my life that I might take it again. This authority, this word, this power of what I received, this commandment of I received of my Father, and the grand program of God in redemption reaches its climax in that resurrection. I'll go before you into Galilee. You'll be scattered. There are the meaning of my death. But I'll gather you back together again. And so, fellow believers, we move on our way this morning in the good of a sacrifice made, in the good of a God who is satisfied about the penalty and judgment of my sin, in the good of a substitute who died in my place. And we go on our way saying, there is no condemnation. There is no hell for me. The torment and the fire, mine eyes shall never see. For me, there is no sentence. For me, death has no stings. Because the Lord who saved me, he shields me with his wings. Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us. And so, I look at him this morning, and I'm so grateful that grace gave my sightless eyes his loveliness to see. I'm so glad I've, the light dawned on me. Once I was blind, but now I can see the light of the world is Jesus. And I look at him, and I see what I never could see before I was saved. I can see what a darkened world cannot see. What a tragedy, why we must not reach them with the light of the gospel. I see him and who he really is. And I say, my sacrifice, my substitute, my propitiate, my saviour, my Lord, and my God. Amen. May the Lord bless us as we leave this morning. Let's pray. Father, we have pondered things that are too great for us, yet we feel in some way by the help of the Holy Spirit and the enlightenment of the word of God we have but touched the fringe the edge of the vastness of an ocean of love the darkness and the mystery of judgment and wrath yet out of it all we see something of the beauty of the savior of the fullness of his work of the wonder of a God who is satisfied of a blood that was shed and made our peace with God, of a living Saviour who passed through death and through death destroyed him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, who rose and ascended up on high amid the countless multitudes of the song of redemption. But he's coming again. Lord Jesus, come quickly. While we wait, Lord, do help us to shine the light, we pray. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our blessing and our portion until he does come. Even so, amen.